Um, I know I've met some of you, but if I haven't met you before, as Ben says, my name's Alice. Um, I, I feel really excited to be here this morning, actually, because I think the last time I was here was before Ben and Lydia were here. And I'm excited to see... I've, I've been hearing so many stories of what God is doing, and I finally get to be like in the midst of it all with you all. So I'm really happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Um, I wanted to start this morning kind of starting by telling a little bit of a story about myself, um, and then I'll end it in the middle of my talk. But because most of you don't know me, I'm aware that probably most of you don't know that I didn't grow up in church. I didn't grow up with a Christian family. I didn't grow up coming to church or knowing this kind of community. Um, And even though that was true, I actually went to university and studied world religions and philosophy. And I kind of would say I perfectly fitted into all the stereotypes of a philosophy student bar smoking a lot of weed. (laughs) Didn't do that. But I did do everything else a philosophy student does. I was opinionated, argumentative. I had this kind of pluralistic outlook on faith and spirituality. Like I had a real interest in why we approach faith as humans. I particularly was interested in the... um, element of faith that brings communities together why why is it that in our kind of experience of the world that so often faith plays a part I found that fascinating um but I wouldn't have described myself as spiritual I certainly wouldn't have described myself as religious um and to me I guess at that time religion of any kind just seemed a bit like a life crutch for the week but In studying philosophy, I came to realize that there was kind of this key element of our humanity or um, our desire to connect to one another, our search for understanding and meaning that I, and also most philosophers I read, couldn't really get to grips with. They couldn't really explain what it was. At the heart of things, there seemed to be a bit of a mystery about who we are on the inside. And I once explained it like this in one of my uni essays. There is something at the heart of things, a depth, which paradoxically could also be described as emptiness. What is most frustrating about this depth is that each of us seems seems desperate to uncover it, but we appear endlessly unable to find whatever it is that we're looking for. Is there even something to find? You can see that I was a little bit intense. Um... I always, even when I read some, when I read back some of my essays, I find it hilarious how intense I was as an 18-year-old. I really thought I had it figured out. Didn't, really didn't. Um, But in some sense, the foundational question I'm asking rings true. Where does humanity search for meaning? And do these avenues actually fulfill us? What is universally discussed amongst philosophical study is that there are basically four main ways that humans, you and I, our families, our friends, people who are spiritual, people who are atheists, people who are Christians, whoever they are, there are four main ways we go looking for meaning and connection. Love, sex, death, which is also less um, dramatically described as hedonism or indulgence, but philosophers love a bit of drama, but love, sex, indulgence, and religion. So just some light topics for us this morning. And as I studied and explored these, explored these topics, I found myself basically in conversation with my friend Morena, who also was studying philosophy. And she is like deeply 
interesting, uh, a curious person, like wants to know about people, really intelligent, funny. Um, and she was very much one of those people who like would be up for a chat and pretty much never be offended. Um, and I found her so compelling. Something about her, I was like, wow, like this girl is like up for a proper good philosophical debate and nothing really seems to like be any offence to her. And she was my first ever Christian friend. And what was most compelling about her, I think, is that she would absolutely be comfortable to say, oh, I don't really know. And I found that compelling because my whole life was like, I desperately want to know. I want to know all of the answers. I want some book or some philosopher to tell me what the answer is. She was like, oh, yeah, I don't really know. I'm like completely comfortable in the gray area, completely comfortable. And I didn't know what that was, but she was the person who invited me to church. And I thought, well, you seem pretty at peace and I want a bit of that. So I'll go with you. Um, and I'll, as I said, I'll continue my story a little bit later, but in that context, I want to read us a very famous example of Jesus encountering the woman at the well in John's Gospel. And it says this. This is John 4. Now he, Jesus, had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Before I continue, a couple of really quick points about this story. Firstly, Jesus is in Samaria. And it may not, it may not be immediately clear to us, but this is absolutely radical that he's even there. An Orthodox Jew, especially a rabbi, so Jesus was known as a rabbi, would never go near Samaria. It was so imperative that you did not set foot on Samaritan soil, that you would choose, if you were traveling somewhere like the other side of Samaria, you would choose to travel three or four extra days so you didn't go into Samaria. So you would meander your way through the outskirts. And the reason was, is because Jews hated the Samaritans. In Jewish eyes, the Samaritans were spiritual heretics. They were complete scum, basically. And if you were to cross paths with them, um, you would be pronounced unclean. So one, Jesus in Samaria. This is massive. Two, Jesus is talking to a woman. And men did not speak to women in public. Because women in the first century context, even Jewish women, had no legal rights. They were uneducated. In fact, rabbis would refuse to teach their own daughters the Torah because educating them was seemed completely worthless. And more, this particular woman is coming to draw water at noon. And that's important because commentators all say the same thing. Women would get together in the morning or the evening, they would get together in community, and they would go together to collect water when the heat of the day wasn't, you know, apparent. And this woman is going on her own and in the middle of the day. So what we know to be true about her is that she is disgraced by her town. This is not normal. Women don't normally go out alone in the heat of the day. And she was forced to go alone because of something that she had done. So Jesus is, is, is in Samaria, strike one. Jesus is speaking to a woman, strike three, strike two. And this woman is out in the middle of the day, strike three. So as I continue to read this story, can I encourage you, try and imagine 
I mean, close your eyes if it helps. It does often help me as a dyslexic. I'm like, I need to focus. Um, and try and feel in your body the palpable shock and energy of the religious outrage provoked by Jesus' behavior. So this is back to verse 9. You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as also did his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, Give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you've had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshippers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that the Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he would explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, I the one speaking to you, I am he. Okay, so let me give you a bit of context. Because Samaria is arid. So the only available water would have been found in kind of wells or cisterns or ponds. So big bits of water basically that are just sitting there for people to go and get. And as a resident of Sikar, this woman would have memorized the whereabouts of all this stagnant water, basically, because that's the only place she could have got it. And so if one dried up, she'd walk to the next one. And if that one dried up, she'd walk herself to the next one. If that one dried up, she'd walk herself to the next one. But Jesus offers her something completely unexpected. Apparently, he's able to provide living water. And living water is like moving, fresh Water flows from springs or rivers or streams, so stuff that moves. And according to rabbinic law, living water was precious, highly valued, because it's the only water that could be used for kind of ritual blessing, ritual cleansing of people. So what we know from her response is that she is desperate to be clean. She's desperate to be cleansed. And so she wants to know where this water is. She knows Sikar doesn't have any springs or rivers or streams. She knows where they are. She knows where the water sources are. So what she's how she's responding to Jesus is revealing to us that she is really confused. She doesn't know where this water could be. But as maybe we know already, Jesus is not talking about physical water for a religious cleansing. He's not offering her a short-term fix. The living water, the Holy Spirit that Jesus offers, will 
offers will well up to eternal life, it says in verse 14. And I, also, I always think it's important for us to ask, what actually is eternal life? I think lots of us will have different understandings of what eternal life is. And as you may know, much, much of the New Testament is originally written in Greek. And there are two words that can be translated life. One is bios, uh, which is more closely translated to our physical existence. So our physical bodies, our bios life. Um, and the other word is zoe, which is a quality of life. Let me illustrate what I mean. So if you're anything like me, when you go on holiday, you spend at least a few days, if not a whole week, trying your best to relax. You know, I'm overthinking things. I'm thinking I need to make sure I've got that thing in with the doctor. I need to make sure I've emailed that person. I need to make sure I've texted back that person. I've got a bit of a buzzy brain. Like, I can't, I find it really hard to relax. So the first few days of holiday, I'm still like, oh my gosh, I'm trying my best to kind of run with it. But there is often a moment in a holiday where something shifts for me. You know, I've walked in nature all day, or I've experienced a town or a city, or I've had great food, or I've had great conversation with, I don't know, a stranger I've never met, and I've been like, whoa, that was incredible. Or um, I've seen something that I've never seen before, or done something that I've never done before. And then I get back to where I'm staying, and I sit down, and I get... My two drinks of choice on holiday would be like an ice-cold Coke Zero or a spicy margarita. No one knows what it will be until I get home. (laughs) Um, But in those moments, I'll sit down and I'll think, yeah, that was a good day. That is the life. I've experienced something new. I felt fully myself today. I felt excited and compelled by the world. I felt close to God. I've seen something new. And this is Zoe. It's when our lives are thrilling, when we're filled with energy, when we feel purpose in our jobs, when we, you know, laugh with our friends, when we feel known by them. Those moments where we're like, I'm fully myself. This is Zoe. Zoe is a quality of life. It's the stuff that makes life worth living. And it literally says in verse 14, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal Zoe. quality of life. Zoe is what gets us past existing into real living. But it's also important for us to know that perhaps unlike our immediate associations with eternal life, in this context, what Jesus isn't necessarily only talking about is heaven, like our eternal life forever and ever. Jesus says, whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst, which is kind of similar to what he says in John 6, I am the bread of life, whoever comes to me um, will never go hungry, whoever believes in me will never be thirsty, those kinds of messages that Jesus is telling us. In both these examples, Jesus isn't talking about physical bread or physical water, and also he's not talking about physical thirst or physical hunger, because this isn't bios, so this isn't our physical lives. What Jesus is saying is that through me, you're you're able to experience eternal zoe, eternal quality of life right now. And what does that reveal to us and the woman at the well? I think that it means that each one of us, you and I, everyone out there on the streets of Forest Hill, is experiencing a deeper thirst than physical thirst. We are all attempting to find things that move us from beyond existing into real living, what we're really created for. 
And just to be clear, some of our attempts to do real living can be really good things like, you know, writing a bucket list of things we want to do in our, I don't know, 40th year or uh, countries we want to see or career developments we hope to make or visions and dreams for our family life or our personal lives or, you know, businesses we hope to build or having a family, experiencing love, giving more love, you know, experiencing more healing. All of these things are really good things. But in and of themselves, they aren't bad. And they give us, I would say, a foretaste of what Zoe promises us. But Jesus says, if you rest your heart in them, you will always be thirsty. If we rest our heart in things that don't actually connect us to him, and they're just foretaste, we'll always be thirsty. And I always think it's, it's interesting to think about the most successful people in any field. Because has their hard work, their success, their fame filled their spiritual hunger? Have you ever heard anyone in an interview say, yeah, I'm at the top of my game and I feel like I've made it and this is it? I mean, I've heard far more interviews of people saying, I'm at the top of my game and there's nothing up here. I feel empty. And Jesus says, only I can do that. Only I can fill that hole. He says, come to me not only because like the rabbinic promise, will my water clean you, reinstate you into this right relationship with God, but also my, my life, my water will give you a spring of life in your soul. You will have a whole new purpose, a whole new joy, a whole new way of being because the Zoe that Jesus offers isn't just a holiday. It's not just two weeks of our lives. It's the transformation of our hearts. It's the transformation of our minds. It's the transformation of our souls. And really slight side point, I always think it's important to recognize when we look at this kind of thing, to recognize that often people haven't experienced this kind of life in church. We haven't always done a great job. And I say that as someone who works for one. Sometimes people don't experience this. What they experience is boredom or judgment or small-mindedness or anger, or control from their leaders. So I want to I wanna express that this isn't always what we experience inside of a church context, although we really do want to. <laughs> we really are trying to, but it just is what it is. But that's not the person of Jesus. Um, before I became a Christian, I spent hours and hours of my life um, going to the pub with Morena and basically arguing any single point of view she ever brought up. I was like, I'm cleverer than this. I can win. <laughs> if you know me, you'll know that I still need to bring to Jesus often my desire to win everything, including arguments, which Brannon can definitely attest to. Um, but I really loved having chats with her, but I was in it to win it. Like I wanted to win against her and prove her wrong. And I also spent hours arguing that in the same way that human love, sex, indulgence, religion didn't lead to consistent fulfillment, I also argued often to her that organized religion, including Christianity, did not offer any different. And I would say that actually here Jesus is saying that I was right in that regard, not about everything, but in this regard, because he, he argues that religion cannot satisfy us. He does tell us that. 
Because religion tells you that if you learn to perform your moral and religious duties better, if you become a cleaner person on the outside, you're able to kind of climb up this ladder of piety. And the higher you climb, the closer you can get to God. And the religious ladder system is all that the Samaritan woman was expecting from Jesus. It's all she had ever experienced. She was accustomed to her reputation. She was accustomed to being who she was. And at face value, the man who stood before her was a rabbi. The man who stood before her, Jesus, to her, was a a religious elitist almost. And she wasn't pure. And the religious ladder system, I would say, is often what we may have experienced inside of church or people out there may have experienced of the church. I'm not speaking of necessarily our community, but I'm speaking just in general. And despite all of that, despite all my arguments with Morena, I found myself at church. I found myself following her almost without my, you know, without even knowing what I was doing. I was like, yes, I will go to church with you. That sounds interesting. Um, And naturally, I stood right at the back. And in the church that I actually first went to, there was lots of pillars which was great for a non-Christian because then I could stand behind a pillar and be like, nobody can see me, but I can see you. Um, And I would kind of come in and out of church. So I wouldn't go every week, but probably for about six months, I would sometimes follow her to church, basically. Stand behind a pillar, watch people. I thought it was so weird. Um, People with their hands in the air, I was like, wow, they really believe this. (laughs) They're really going for it. Um, and particularly when people got prayed for at the end, I was like, that is wild. Like, you're going up to the front, you're trusting someone you don't know, they're pretending to hear from God. Like, it was literally like everything about it, I was like, this is freaking me out. But something about it, um, I loved. And I distinctly remember thinking at the end of one service, I refuse to go up to the front for prayer. Like, every time I was like, absolutely not. And then I saw out of the corner of my eye a man who I now know really well because I've worked with him but a guy called Ed who was a vicar at my old church literally got off stage walked around the corner of the church right to me and was like I feel like the Lord is saying something to me about you can I pray for you and I was thinking no but in my Britishness I said yeah yep you can pray for me sure that sounds great (laughs) Um, So he encouraged me to close my eyes and to just open my hands as I was receiving a gift. And he just said, I'm just going to put my hand on on your shoulder and just invite the Holy Spirit. And I was like, sure, you do that. So he put his hand on my shoulder, invited the Holy Spirit, waited for a while. And then he had a very specific, Um, prophetic word about my childhood, about an experience I'd had um, that was really scary, basically, um, and quite traumatic. And there was a a very specific thing that he said where basically no one had believed me when I was a kid about this thing. So he said, I have this picture of you, you're going through this thing, and I feel like what God is saying is he's always believed you. And at that point, I literally feel a tangible weight on my body, so heavy that I fall to my knees. And I literally stay there for maybe 30 or 40 minutes, just heaviness all over my body. And I always think it's important to explain, not bad heaviness. I wasn't like 
feeling suffocated or in a small space or I wasn't feeling like overwhelmed. I felt like it was the love of God poured out upon me. It felt like the glory of God on me, his love. It, and it was weighing me down. Like he loved me so much that there was weight all over my body. And I remember after the experience thinking, one, how did that guy know anything about me? I've never, ever told anyone that. Certainly not in London. But I'd never told anyone. And also, what was that? Who is this Jesus that can encounter me like this? And so Ed very kindly explained, you know, what he felt like could happen. I was like, what was that? You know, and he very kindly explained what he felt like had happened in that moment. And now I know that that was the first time I met the person of Jesus and that he pressed his love down so firmly upon my heart that I've never been able to walk away again. And although my story is mine, in some sense it's not unique to me, I don't believe, because Jesus spends his life in the Gospels revealing himself to the people he loves and doing it in a way that they understand, and doing it in a way that sets them free. I mean, look at the Samaritan woman, what she says in verse 15. Sir, give me this water so that that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, go, call your husband and come back. I often think at first glance, you're like, oh, Jesus is calling her out. He's like, I know exactly who you are. Um, And it does sound a little disjointed at first, doesn't it? But I don't think that Jesus is changing the subject, and I don't think he's really even trying to prove his divinity. And I don't think he's trying to call her out and shame her for her life choices. I don't think that's true. I think it's a lot more simple than that. I think Jesus is answering her question. She's just asked, where is the water? Show it to me. And Jesus is saying, the water I'm telling you about is what you have been been trying to find with men. He's helping her understand. He's saying, you already know the water exists. Your whole life is evidence of that. You've been attempting to to find this Zoe life, this purpose in how you're loved, but that's not satisfying you. And then a little bit later in verse 19, she says, sir, I can see that you're a prophet, Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. And I actually, when I think about that, when I I read those verses, I actually find them incredibly moving. And it's not really the content of what she says. It's just some theology about some temple worship. But because I think behind what she says is her humanity, it's her knee-jerk reaction to vulnerability. This woman is downtrodden, she's silenced, No one shows her love. And if Jesus, a man, a rabbi, speaking to her, acknowledging her, seeing her, respecting her, isn't overwhelming enough, he then shares, I already know about your five husbands, and I already already know about this sixth guy too. That's okay. You're just thirsty. Come to me. And I don't, for me, when I read these verses, I can almost feel like the moment where, you know, when you want to cry and your like throat fills and your chest gets heavy and you're like oh my gosh oh my gosh you can feel the rising of stinging tears in her eyes because this Jesus knows her 
and it's almost like it's too much. And it's in that moment she's like, yeah, um, in Jerusalem, you know, we're trying to, we're supposed to worship like this and blah, blah, blah. You know, she's just trying to be like, I'm too vulnerable. This is too much. I don't know what to do with this. This person actually knows me. And so she tries to like scramble for something else and like change the, change the subject. And Jesus responds with gentleness and kindness because he knows what she needs. And then he returns to something that she will understand. Because in verse 25, the woman says, I know the Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. I am the Messiah. So Jesus doesn't end with her spiritual need. He doesn't end with telling her how much she's, she's loved. He doesn't even end with the water. Because living water isn't an abstract thing. It's a person. He doesn't say, I have the living water, or I can show you where the living water is, or I can lead you on the path to living water, or just like, follow me, maybe we can find some living water. He says, no, I am the divine cosmic truth, be made a person, come to me. I am the living water, I am the Messiah. It's about me, the water comes from me, salvation comes from me. And I think, very simply, that's what God is saying to us this morning. Come and have a drink. 